Please stay tuned to WBAI next for equal time for free thought. And welcome back to Equal Time for Free Thought. I'm Barry Seidman. Equal Time is your evidence-based radio program informed by scientific naturalism, which takes a secular humanist perspective of the world today. We cover topics from science and religion to politics, economics, and other social issues. It is our hope that by examining the underlying philosophy and science of today's world, we could have a better understanding of what it means to be human and can facilitate progressive social change. I was born in the early 1960s and have not seen American society come so close to collapse during my lifetime as it is now, and I lived through the nuclear 80s. The fallout from the 2016 presidential election, on top of the growing violence, alienation, financial struggles, and polarization of American culture, has created a recipe for disaster. And with climate change, global terrorism, including that perpetrated by the U.S. itself, and continued existence of nuclear weapons, we have to find a way to alter our trajectory before it's too late. Well, if it isn't already too late. In late 2008, we invited political philosopher and economist Takis Fotopoulos on Equal Time to discuss his Inclusive Democracy project. So much has happened in the nine years since. Takis was a senior lecturer in economics at the Polytechnic of North London from 1969 to 1989 until he began editing the journal Society and Nature, later Democracy and Nature, and subsequently the online International Journal of Inclusive Democracy. He was also a columnist of, and I'm going to have to pronounce this carefully, Eltheritibia. <laughs> Eltheritibia. I'll have to ask him how that's pronounced. The second biggest newspaper in Greece. His books include Towards an Inclusive Democracy, The Crisis of the Growth Economy, and the Need for a New Liberatory Project, and currently, the New World Order in Action, Globalization, the Brexit Revolution, and the Left. It's been almost nine years since we've had you on the program. A lot has happened since then, but before we get into all that, or some of that, and examine the ideas in your book, perhaps a few definitions of terms would be a good idea. Firstly, the term New World Order is an oft-used conspiracy theory term, as you know which could describe anything from a clandestine totalitarian world government and Freemasonry to alien invasion, believe it or not. So why did you choose to use this term and what do you mean by it? Yeah, actually the term uh, New World Order is being used in different ways by both the left and the right. I mean, the right, as you said, usually what means by this is uh, a conspiracy theory of some sort, whereas the left, it means a kind of ideology. In fact, what uh, I'm going to do and uh, today, and of course uh, I did in the book, is I described a new definition of the New World Order, according to which uh, the New World Order is a structural change in the capitalist market system. Another term you use is transnational elite. Are we talking yeah. about the 1% here or political ruling classes? Which one are we speaking about or is there something else? The transnational elite, which is uh, defined in relation to uh, the New World Order, which, as I said, is a, a structural uh, change in the market capitalist system, is uh, related to the New World Order, and it simply means the network of the elites which 
are not just local, they are transnational elites in the era of globalization. We do have, we still have, of course, local elites, but these are not the elites which control the world. The world is controlled today by transnational elites, and uh, these are economic elites, that is, those that control the uh, transnational or multinational corporations, political elites, uh, cultural elites, and so on. And the term globalization also has uh, several meanings. One of them being the idea that we are creating a united world where everybody is free and the West will help the third world nations become successful like Europe and the United States, blah, blah, blah. How are you using this term and do you think any of the West's actions in countries like India, for instance, have benefited people there? Of course, what you just described is what uh, I call the ideology of globalization. In fact, globalization is simply an economic uh, phenomenon. It's simply the today's evolution of the capitalist market system. The capitalist market system today can only be globalized. And uh, this means certain uh, important consequences. For example, uh, if you have globalized uh, capitalist system, that means that markets have to be open and liberalized, and this is the basic condition, uh, actually, for example, in the European Union, what they call the four freedoms, which means that all markets, market for commodities, market for labor, market for capital, should be free and liberalized. In other words, not only open, but also there should be no uh, controls on these markets. So this is the defining characteristic of globalization today. And uh, this has nothing to do with the ideology you mentioned, how you can say that uh, globalization helps people in India or in the United States and so on, when in fact, and uh, this is verified by uh, many data, which uh, some of them uh, actually I described in the book, that there is a continuous concentration of income and wealth all over the world in the last uh, 20 years or so since globalization has flourished. So you may have an increase in the national income of China or India or whatever, but this does not mean that uh, this wealth is distributed in any way fair or equal. And this is something that even serious systemic analysts recognize, that they say this is the major problem of globalization, that its uh, benefits are not distributed uh, in any way fairly. Uh, that's why actually we have uh, the reaction, the present reaction in the form of what we may call neo-nationalists or uh, I call them sovereignty mo movements. I've spoken with some people about how people who believe that globalization has helped India because people are working there and the national wealth has gone up a little bit and that kind of stuff. And then I say that it's just it's not distributed properly, but they blame that on the people, the elites in India, rather than on the system itself, or rather than on globalization. So that's why I was asking that question as well. What we have now in countries like India, China, and of course in the West as well, is a few billionaires. Uh, and on the other hand, we have also some some sort of uh, mid-class developing in uh, both India <clears throat> and China. But the rest of uh, people, well, the vast majority of people are victims of globalization. And in fact, the same is going on not only in India and China, but in uh, advanced capitalist countries. That is, why people voted for Brexit in Britain? Why people voted for Trump in the United States? That is, if you analyze, as I did, the voting preferences and so on, you will see that in fact it's the victims of globalization in both cases that voted for Brexit or Trump or the same happened in France 
when they voted for Le Pen or uh, in uh, Austria and so on. So in other words, we have an international or worldwide movement now from below, which of course is being exploited by political elites and uh, Trump is a kind of political elite exploiting this movement and the same in Britain and so on. But we have to distinguish between the movement from below and what are the party movements or political movements that try to express uh, this movement are. One final term, because this term confuses people in this country too, depending on what your political ideology is, the political philosophy, neoliberalism. This term really gets a beating here. Um, Hillary Clinton supporters, who still actually think of her uh, and themselves as traditional liberals, believe it's a fake term created by the right wing to demonize liberals and progressives. I've actually heard people tell me that. Progressives, uh, which are, I guess, social democrats, think of the term as sort of a special version of capitalism, which has somehow ruined the nation and that we, in the United States, and that we have to get back to more social democratic sort of capitalism, like FDR's New Deal. And the left, whatever that may be anymore in this country, the left see it as just the latest version of capitalism born from Reagan and Thatcher and the transnational elite's efforts to save capitalism from itself. So, all that said, how are you using the term neoliberalism in your work? Yeah, actually, I don't accept uh, this explanation. That is, uh, neoliberalism is not just an ideology, as uh, many people in the left, uh, or the so-called left, uh, suggest today. And uh, it is not just also a version of capitalism, uh, unless you mean by this that uh, this is a structural phenomenon in the evolution of the capitalist system. In this sense, yeah, I would accept it, but... Uh, today's capitalism has very little to do with the capitalism of 30 years ago, even more so of 100 years ago. The basic, the qualitative difference between today's capitalism and previous capitalism is that the capitalist system was linked from the beginning with the nation state. In fact, the nation state helped a lot in the evolution of the capitalist market internally, domestically, in each country. The capitalism that prevails today is in any way possible, try to eliminate the nation state. In other words, we have now the phasing out of the nation state. This can be seen clearly in the European Union, for example, where, remember, <coughs> the states do not have any more any say in the economic affairs, the domestic economic affairs, but instead, domestic economy, especially if they are members of the Eurozone as well, economic policies are determined from outside, from a bureaucracy in Brussels. And the same happens all over the world where we have the phasing out of the nation state and instead we have supranational or transnational elites developing what I call the transnational elite before, which actually control today's world economic system. So this is what we mean by neoliberal means, as I said at the beginning, the new world order of neoliberal globalization is a structural phenomenon which signifies the new form that capitalist market economies have taken in the last 20 years or so, and which have very little to do with previous uh, models of capitalism. Even the globalization of the early 20th century as some Marxists uh, recall it, uh, has nothing to do with today's globalization. Because that globalization, which was attempted by countries like Britain and Germany and so on, was in fact a globalization based on nation states or on empires, the British Empire, uh, the Russian Empire and so on. So to the extent that uh, 
these empires were in constant conflict between them, obviously no globalization could be possible. That's why they ended up with the First World War and then with the Second World War. It was a conflict of imperialism because exactly capitalism at that time was based on nation states. Today, it's inconceivable. You cannot have a war between European states. Why? Because they have a common interest. They express the same economic interests of uh, uh, the same multinational corporations, and they are expressed politically by and militarily by NATO and so on. So there is no reason for uh, Germany to start a war against uh, Britain and vice versa. This is the qualitative difference of today from any previous globalization and any previous nation states. Right, right. So, I mean, I think a lot, of, well, I'm not sure about in the United States, but I think if people pay attention to Brexit and EU issues, but also even here, people get the idea that there is a, st a strong difference between nationalist kind of capitalism versus this internationalist kind. Still, there is a debate about which is more dangerous to humankind, this transnational neoliberal capitalism, which is obviously dangerous, or old-school nationalism and nativism. This is, of course, a debate which came about here due to Brexit, partly in the United Kingdom, as well as the rise of Donald Trump and Trumpism in the United States. So here, I guess we can talk a little more detail. What your view is on these two political modalities? Yeah, but before we reach uh, Brexit, I think uh, I have to say a few words sure. about what about what you mentioned. In fact, there are wars today. Simply there are no wars between uh, the countries which are fully integrated into the new world order. As I said, between European states or between uh, USA and, uh, and Europe and so on. Of course, we had a series of wars in the last 20 years or so. First in Yugoslavia, where NATO bombed Serbia, uh, then in Iraq, where there was an invasion of the country, then in Syria, where the same pattern was repeated, uh, then in, uh, in Libya, and then in Syria, and so on. So, I mean, there are wars, but these are different from the wars between advanced capitalist states, as it was the case both in the First Second World and the Second. Now, we have wars by what I call the transnational elite, against any state which resists being integrated into the new world order. Right. That's why there was a war against Iraq, because it was a sovereign nation. That's why there was a war against Libya and in Yugoslavia, because all of these were sovereign nations, sovereign which, nations right. which were not integrated into the new world order, and therefore they had to be subordinated. It's one thing to talk about peace and so on. That is, there is a propaganda of the transnational elite that uh, the European Union secured peace in the, in Europe. Uh, this is funny because it's not the European Union that secured the uh, peace, but the fact that the capitalist states in Europe, uh, the elites of course of these uh, countries, were united in creating the European Union exactly in order to express better the interests of the multinationals. In fact, the basic treaties which establish the European Union have been drafted by a mysterious organization, European Union of Trade Industrialists, something like this, a round table of, round of industrial capitalists, which uh, has created uh, all the institutional framework of the European Union. So we have to distinguish between uh, nationalism and uh, the old uh, nation-state wars and uh, what is today, which is a uh, distorted kind of internationalism, what uh, I call the New World Order 
of neoliberal globalization, which still creates wars, but not between the advanced capitalist countries, which are integrated into the new world order. There are, of course, uh, conflicts, as we all know. Uh, for example, why there is all this tension with uh, Russia? Because Russia is not integrated yet fully, although it is a member of the World Trade Organization and so on. It's not fully integrated in the sense that uh, uh, the Russian elite, Putin, wants to have an equal uh, member of the transnational elite to participate in the transnational elite, which they do not accept, I mean, uh, the people in the West, the elites in the West, do not accept it. And that's why we have all this tension between the transnational elite and Russia. So Brexit then, there's different yeah. views even from people I know in England. I mean, some say it was a bad thing because of um, security reasons. Some say it was a bad thing because of international travel between the countries, that it's good to have you know, one world government kind of liberal beliefs, and others think it's it was a good thing that it happened, because even though it might bring back a sort of nationalism, maybe, maybe not, it also, it breaks from the, it breaks the pattern that the EU has set, and maybe will lead to some changes within the neoliberal agenda. So what do you think Brexit meant, and do you think it's going to last, and what do you think about those opinions? Of course, what uh, Brexit means and uh, how people see Brexit, uh, you have to distinguish between which people you're talking about. Right, of course. The elites basically are against uh, Brexit. They saw it during the, the campaign uh, for Brexit when uh, all the major uh, transnational corporations which are based in UK uh, launched a, a very huge campaign to uh, terrify the people, what was called the Project Prayer, to terrify people not to vote for Brexit. And in fact, the transnational elites took part, an effective part, in this campaign. Even uh, uh, Obama came here in London uh, to say that uh, you have to vote against Brexit. And uh, the American elites were, of course, against Brexit. The European elites, the European Union elites were against and uh, it was basically a movement which started from below. In other words, once the Conservative Party launched this referendum in the firm belief, it was Cameron at that time, or the firm belief that uh, they would win it, uh, they did not know, and they did so below, because there were some elements of the Conservative Party who were in favor of Brexit, but by no means uh, the majority. There were, however a strong part or a significant part of the Tory party which forced uh, Cameron to have a Brexit. Uh, again, as I said, on the belief that they don't know what will win. But in fact, what happened is that, and this can be proven by the elector, by the results of the election, uh, what happened was that many people in Britain from their lower income groups, that is the working class, um, poor farmers, people uh, with uh, small shops and so on, all these people who were the victims of globalization all these years, people, for example, in the north of England, uh, were, uh, who remain, uh, became unemployed once uh, Thatcher started opening the markets because why an industrialist in Britain would use British steel when it can buy steel from Korea or whatever at half the price or less. So the 
basic industries in Britain were closed down at the time. There was a huge car industry in Britain, a huge uh, basic industry to support it in steel, rubber and so on. All these industries closed down and Britain in the last uh, 20 years or so was transformed from an industrial economy to a service economy, that is, it will rely mainly on the financial sector, the city of London and so on, and uh, everything else was imported. Of course, all these people who were employed by these sectors, who were phased out, were terribly angry. They lost their jobs, they lost their, sometimes even their homes, and so on. All these people became immediately supporters of a no vote because they thought that it was the European Union which was the means through which these globalization policies were passed and were implemented. You know that in Britain it has been calculated that something like uh, 60% of the legislation passed through the House of Parliament in fact gener is generated in the European Union, in Brussels. So when uh, people belonging to all these groups found out all this, they said, uh, come on, who is uh, ruling Britain now? It's not us anymore. It's somebody else in Brussels and so on. So let's get out of it. And that's why there was a, a huge movement of people who were completely apathetic up to then to electoral contests, that is, people who ceased voting for Labour Party, because the Labour Party since Brexit, since uh, Blair, has become a pure neoliberal party, as most uh, social democratic parties. So the traditional clientele of the Labour Party either moved to other parties or mostly abstained. And what happened with the Brexit was that all these people, particularly those who abstained, came back and voted for Brexit. And that's why you see that uh, the poor income groups have voted for Brexit, and it was only in London where Brexit was voted down. Why in London? Because London concentrates all the financial sector, which is, uh, of course, uh, the beneficiary from uh, globalization, and those who work for it. And London, because also there are people coming from all over the world who try to find the future there, as it happened, for example, with uh, uh, emigrants to the United States and so on. But the rest of Britain, the rest of uh, England in particular, voted against Brexit. And the same would have happened, uh, I'm sorry, in favour of Brexit. Right. And the same would have happened also with Scotland, but uh, the Nationalist Party of Scotland uh, voted in favour of uh, the European Union, in other words, against Brexit. On the other hand, the Nationalist Party in uh, Wales voted uh, in favour of Brexit. Wales voted in favour. What about Ireland? Yeah, Ireland, Northern Ireland also voted in favour, but in fact, the Nationalist Party, which is now uh, actually cooperating with the Conservative Party in governing the country, uh, voted against. So they were divided in the nationalist vote in Northern Ireland. Well, moving to the United States, I know you're from Greece and you live in England, so you, you're looking from outside in um, at the United States, which is an anomaly sometimes. But a lot of things have happened that are similar. You know, we're a service-based culture now. It cannot, we don't produce, we import, et cetera, et cetera. Donald Trump is a new kind of thing for us, and I've been I'm, I've seen some crazy stuff happening here, including George W. Bush. But this is something a little different, for better or worse. You know, the United States now has probably the least qualified, and we can discuss what qualified means too. This qualified doesn't mean good necessarily; it just means carry out the wishes of the transnational elite. But one of the least 
qualified in our history a sleazy narcissistic game show host you know who has only not only has split the republican party but holds a mirror up i think to the united states to us showing us what we really look like to the world because of our policies over the last five decades what do you think about the rise of trump himself and the empowerment of the most divisive elements in american culture with him like the neo-nazis and, and the xenophobes and the nationalists and stuff like this the sure. first question was about whether there is qualitatively any difference now in the uh, the United States, whether things are worse, and from what point of view are worse, and why people voted for Trump, which is also the second question, that is how we explain the rise of Trump. I think here that uh, we have to distinguish, as I said before, between the elites, uh, both in the United States and in uh, the other advanced capitalist countries, and uh, the victims of globalization, which belong to the uh, lower social classes and so on, the working class, etc. The United States has not, of course, suffered because of globalization if we talk about the national statistics about how the uh, national income has grown and so on. Why this? Because, in fact, what we had was U.S.-based transnational corporation, which expanded all over the world. So, from their point of view, of course, uh, things were uh, rosy because uh, they could uh, exploit, uh, if you like to use the term, cheap labor in uh, China or India or whatever. But at the same time, they had, of course, to move many parts of their productive activity from the states abroad. This, uh, the classical example, is Apple, for example. When you buy an Apple computer, as I have one, in fact, it says uh, made in China. Right. Of course, it's not made in China because all the electronic uh, uh, base of the computer is, uh, is made in uh, California, not in China. China is simply assembled computer and then it's all made in China. Now, this means that many people who could work in the United States in the steel industry, in the car industry, and so on, uh, found themselves in the last uh, 20 years or so being unemployed because uh, cheap uh, European cars could uh, come, or Chinese or co Korean cars could come to Britain, uh, sorry, to the United States, and the result was that people in the United States, workers, especially in what is called the Rust Belt and so on, became unemployed and therefore very angry with what's going on. So this was the reason. Uh, why uh, things are not going well for some who actually happen to be the majority, both in Britain and the, uh, the United States and so on. And uh, for others, of course, uh, things are uh, going very well. That is, in the United States, people in the coastal uh, uh, parts of the United States, both in the East and the West, California, New York and so on, uh, have no problem, but uh, the people in the mid where actually they were based, uh, all the main uh, industries and so on, are not happy at all with what's going on. So there was a popular movement, both in the uh, United States and in Britain, against globalization and its effects. And uh, it was then uh, Trump who, if you like, exploited this movement and uh, promised that uh, uh, it would bring back jobs from uh, abroad, that it will punish uh, multinational corporations who move uh, their activities uh, abroad, uh, that it, uh, he would uh, reduce the immigration from uh, Mexico, etc. So these were popular uh, 
demands, which therefore gave him the victory because of the vote that he got in all these areas in the center of the United States, as I said, against the liberal parts of the United States in the East and the West. So that's how you can explain the rise of Trump now. And, and also that could explain also the huge uh, war that was launched against Trump even after he was elected. I have not seen in my life all the establishment to attack the president once elected. That is, this was, I think, an unprecedented phenomenon. And this can only be explained because, as I said, it is this transnational elite that controls not only multinational corporations, controls also the world media like the New York Times or the, the Times and Guardian here and so on, controls also the cultural industry and so on. So, in fact, that's why we may talk about the transnational elite because we have a network of elites who each actually takes uh, decisions and promote its own decisions and its own ideology all over the world. Now, to come to the last uh, question you asked about the rise of neo-Nazis and so on, I would say that this is part of the propaganda that is being uh, developed by the transnational elites and the media they control. Because neo-Nazis were uh, in existence both in Europe and in the States for many years. But usually they did not control more than two or three or five percent at most of the electorate. So what happened, uh, you saw in Britain that uh, uh, 51% of the population voted uh, for Brexit or what happened in the States and uh, you saw a huge uh, many millions of people voting for Trump. Obviously they did not become neo-Nazis from one day to the next. This, right. is just, this is just the smear campaign launched by the left and this is a major other item we can discuss that uh, the left attacked very much these movements that started from below and wanted only sovereignty and uh, they attacked them because they thought and uh, rightly of course that they lose uh, electoral clientele because uh, in Britain for example it can be proven that uh, the vast majority who uh, which voted for Brexit were working class people who used to vote in the past labor so obviously all these workers did not become uh, neo-Nazis Simply, they found out that the Labour Party, which is fully in, the Euro in favor of the European Union, does not express them anymore. And you are tuned to WBAI New York, 99.5 on your FM dial, streaming at WBAI.org. We've been discussing the book, The New World Order in Action, with author Takis Fotopoulos. And now, the conclusion of our interview. England is a little bit, maybe, a little bit simpler. I can't say for sure I don't live there. There are similarities, of course. Here in the United States, there's a variety of things going on. Obviously, I'm not sure how many people in the electorate understood even what Hillary Clinton represented. A lot of people didn't like her. They might have had an idea that she and Obama and, and the Bushes represent a transnational elite and they were tired of establishment politics. That's been happening here for a while. They might understand that. They might also understand the problems, the individual problems with Donald Trump and the types of people that are happy that he's the president. I don't mean the people who have been hurt by the transnational elite, but, you know, those elements in because this society has the racism and the, the history of the United States is obviously different than in England with, with slavery and with, with a lot of other things. So also it gets even more confusing when you add the other so-called revolution, you know, around Bernie Sanders because some people saw that as something from below. Even though he's part of the system and he's part of a social democratic ideology, 
the Sanders supporters figured they were going to bring back, you know, some kind of social democracy that we never really quite had anyway, but they were going to bring back, they were going to bring us back to the time before neoliberalism, before Reagan took over and Bush and everyone since. The Hillary Clinton supporters, I'm not even sure, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on there. They wanted the first female president, amongst other things. Those three elements, and it, maybe it's not so much that people voted for Trump or for third party as opposed to voting against the establishment, against Hillary Clinton, but even we have the Christian fundamentalists who are always been a big voting group for the Republican Party supporting Donald Trump, which is really odd because based on their own expressed values as so-called Christians, you know, Donald Trump is nowhere near an exemplary figure of that. So, so I think there's a lot of things going on. When you said he exploits, he's really exploiting through all those characteristics of this country, through religion and racism and white working class Americans and all this other stuff. Who knows what Donald Trump really believes? But now, you know, when you wrote the book, he was just becoming elected. It was just the election which just had just happened. Now he's been there for a while. What do you think has happened? Do you think it's the same kind of um, he still represents or people who, whether they understand what's going on or not, still think that he represents or his administration somehow underneath all the craziness represents nationalism versus or isolationism versus the transnational elite situation neoliberalism or do you think trump's become part of the system now he's being used by the same transnational elites now, no matter what comes out of his mouth first regards uh, the division between uh, clinton and uh, trump or if you like between sanders and uh, trump i think that uh, it is generally accepted that uh, the entire uh, liberal establishment uh, was against uh, Trump and uh, that uh, it was divided, however, to get the support for Hillary or for Clinton, uh, for um, Sanders. And of course, the majority of the uh, liberal establishment and liberal voters uh, were in favor of Hillary Clinton, who controlled also the party mechanism and so on, and against Sanders. And uh, Sanders, of course, became unreliable from the moment that he said that uh, vote for Hillary if I qualify, and uh, disappointed many people who may have believed uh, in uh, his program. Now, the problem with uh, people like Sanders, it's not a matter of personalities, it's that social democracy is not feasible anymore, it's not possible anymore in a globalized society and economy as we live now. It's not a matter that uh, Sanders uh, wants to betray his voters or that uh, the same happened in uh, France with uh, uh, Mitterrand or Holland or the same in Britain. It's not that uh, they wanted uh, to betray their voters. It's simply that they have to accept the structural characteristics of the system. Otherwise, they cannot actually implement any of their policies unless they break with the institutions of the New World Order. If they decide not to break, then they cannot do anything from inside. You cannot, in other words, improve the European Union so that it would become a good social democratic uh, union. In fact, this was attempted uh, in the late uh, 1980s with the Delors program, which was a social democratic program. Delors was also a social democrat. But all these were thrown and was uh, out and was uh, rejected by the successors of the law and uh, the new generation, if you like, or European Union leaders, uh, who adopted the neoliberal program, not because uh, they wanted to abandon the social democracy, but because they found out that with open and liberalized markets, which they took it for granted, that's the important thing, 
with openly liberalized markets, they had no choice. That's why you see the collapse of the social democracy, not just in the United States in the form of uh, Sanders or Hillary Clinton, but all over the world. In Europe now, all social democratic parties have collapsed. Look at the electoral results in uh, Germany, in uh, France, in uh, Italy, and in Britain and so on. Britain, uh, it's an exception as regards Corbyn. We can discuss it later if you like. But otherwise, the social democratic parties all over Europe, uh, in the United States, can collapse. And the reason is that they could not anymore offer what uh, the old social democratic parties offered in the past. So that's the reason why people voted both for Trump in the United States or uh, for Brexit in Britain. Before you continue, I just have one question about that. There was a line, it was a quip, if you paid attention, I'm sure you did, to the primary debates between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, where he was talking about health care, you know, universal socialized health care, like most of Europe still has in other places. And he was describing Denmark as an example, and she said, well, we're not Denmark. Do you think Scandinavia, Denmark, Sweden, those countries are still holding on to a social democracy of some sort? And if they are, are they an exception? So maybe when Hillary Clinton said we're not Denmark, she really meant we're not going to do that here because we can't, not because we won't. Oh, in fact, this is not true. Actually, I have written an article about uh, the Scandinavian social democracy a few months ago where I had a lot of uh, evidence and uh, research by Scandinavian people who showed that actually... And it is a myth that uh, the old social democratic state still exists in any Scandinavian country. In fact, what they did both in Sweden and in uh, Denmark and so on, they introduced the open and liberalized markets, which as regards, for example, labor, means that uh, you cannot have any more full employment as we used to know it in the past. That is now... You have flexible labor, and flexible labor means that you should be available at any time uh, whenever your employer or, or candidate employer asks you to work and so on. In fact, uh, part-time and uh, what they call in, in Britain and the U.S. Uh, zero contract hours are prevalent. What uh, zero contract hours mean is, if you remember the old uh, Hollywood films, where uh, every morning somebody from the factory were going out of the gates and was choosing between people who were going to work. Now, this is the situation today in Britain, and I suspect also in the uh, United States, that if people who do not have any contracts, do not have any insurance, uh, any effective insurance rights and so on, have to work in order to avoid unemployment. And if they don't want to, to work this way, then they can simply use immigrant workers. That's why they have so many immigrants allowed to get into Europe and uh, to some extent also in the United States. So what happens is that uh, as regards the, the health care, for example, that you mentioned, no social democratic health care system is any more viable. In Britain, for example, if you know, they had the best uh, health care system, uh, had personal uh, knowledge of it, because when I came, it was working marvelously. It was established immediately after the war by a very different, of course, Labour Party than the present one. And uh, it was free at all levels. That is, uh, people could use uh, the health system free from the general practitioner up to the more specialized the operation and so on. Now, what happened, however, later on, following Thatcher, Blair and so on, was that in order to reduce taxes, 
and low taxes one of the basic elements of the neoliberal globalization, that is, a country has to be competitive in order to compete within the open market. And to be competitive has to have low taxes, particularly corporation taxes and so on. So they lower taxes, and this means what? This means they have to lower also state spending. And the first candidates were health, where most spending was going, and uh, education. So that's why the health system in Britain started deteriorating rapidly since Thatcher and Blair and continues to deteriorate now. And the idea, of course, of the transnational elite is that the quality of services will become so bad over time so that people would prefer those who can afford, of course, would prefer private. And something similar is going on in uh, the United States and as regards the Scandinavian countries, as I said, once they adopted the flexibility of prices and wages, then they cannot talk anymore about social democracy. They just try to keep some sort of health system uh, by taxing people who can afford more. On this, they differ perhaps from continental Europeans, but still the system is has no comparison with what the health system, education system in Scandinavia was uh, 20, 30 years ago with what, what is going on now. Early in your book, you talk about the social and psychological effects on people when their countries enter the, the New World Order. I can't speak directly to nations outside the United States, never visited them, but it's evident here that America has become what sociologist Charles Darber describes as a sociopathic society. There's a shooting, mass shooting almost every day or every week it feels like these days. There's lots of things going on in this society that's crumbling. Charles Darber lists many reasons for his belief that we're a sociopathic society. You mentioned this too. What are some examples you see wherever you see them? Like for instance, in the United States, we have an increase of the use of antidepressants and other drugs. There's a lot more depression and anxiety than there used to be. There's more eating disorders than there used to be. This kind of trend that is people uh, who are asocial, who are individualized people who try to explain everything around them and act accordingly on the basis of how they and perhaps their family would do better, but not giving a damn about the collective, either it is the community or society in general. This threat, of course, is cultivated by the cultural globalization and the individual, I'm sorry, and the ideological globalization, because what sort of society they promote is a society where Human rights uh, have to be protected at any cost, even if they refer to uh, relations between minorities of the population, like uh, uh, between transgender people and, uh, and so on. That is, uh, human rights is the ideology of globalization, which is used not only domestically, but also as against the foreign relations. Don't forget that uh, all the main wars that transnational elite in the last 20 years were in order to protect human rights in Iraq, in Libya, and so This means that there is a, a deliberate trend to individualize society because this is the whole idea of a neoliberal globalization, that what uh, people should do is to try to accommodate themselves with the existing social and economic framework and try to find individual solutions for everything affecting them. They don't anymore think in social terms, as they used to think in the past. In this connection, I would say this, that self-determination today, or rather the sovereign movements I mentioned before, are an expression of self-determination. 
in the past, self-determination was expressed either in the form of classical democracy or in the form of a confederation of uh, communities, and this was the main form up to the French Revolution. And then, after the establishment of nation-states, then self-determination was done through the nation-state. That was the only way in which, collectively, people could express their desires about what to do about the society, how it's going to move, how they're going to spend the, the income, and so on. But once nature states are phased out, as it happened today, then in fact people do not have any, any means of collective self-determination. And the only thing they are left with is individual self-determination at the individual level to try to sort out their problems. These have all these sort of side effects that you mentioned. People become depressed, people become anxious because they feel they are failed, people, they don't succeed in the market to get a good job or a good house or whatever that is. Any fault they assign it to themselves, any fault in other words of why they don't get a good job or why they don't get a, a good house, everything becomes individualized. Everybody thinks individual terms, that means that all these ecological problems that you mentioned are simply necessary side effects of this kind of society we live in. Right, right, and loneliness as well. Is there a way, in your mind, to defeat neoliberalism, capitalism in general perhaps, and take power from the elite and give it back to the people without a violent revolution or waiting for some apocalyptic event to occur first? Since I had to suggest a shifting strategy, because you remember when we were talking about inclusive democracy, right. the strategy was very different from what I'm talking today. The reason is not that I change my ideas. I still believe that an ideal society should be an inclusive democracy, but the problem is how you get there. Right. And to my mind, this is not possible anymore, as it used to be perhaps 30 or 40 years ago. That is where people in local communities and so on were creating eco-communes or whatever and try to implement their ideas at a local level with the hope that this way they could expand and uh, at a social level what they were doing at the local level. It seemed even more positive 10 years ago than it does now. More possible, I mean. Yeah, today it's not possible anymore. That is, in order to be able even to experiment on this kind of basis, you have to be able to control the economy around you. And you can't control any, in any efficient way, your economy around you if it is globalized and if it is huge corporations that control what people buy at the supermarket or what they, uh, they, they use their money generally. So what I mean is that today we live under occupation. That is, we have a kind of occupation by the transnational elites which actually take all important decisions about ourselves. So, if you have an occupation, the only way to proceed, as it happened, for example, during the German occupation in Europe uh, during the Second World War, is first to resist, to get your national liberation, and then once you have national liberation, in other words, once you can control your nation, you can control your country or at least your community, I mean control, economic control, and political control, and of course cultural control. Once you control your community, then you can talk about how you can change the community, how you can have an ideal society, and so on. So therefore, unless 
people. That's why I call this movement today a movement for self-determination, that it is the expression of self-determination today, as it used to be in the past in the form of confederation and so on. Today, the form of self-expression, of self-determination that is available is only through the creation of uh, first forms of society which secure national liberation and once you get your national liberation then you can talk about social liberation that is the social liberation presupposes if you like national liberation unless you control uh, your environment your country or your community you cannot talk about an ideal society even uh, the Russian uh, communists in 1917 they did what? they invaded they stormed the Winter Palace. Okay? Why? Because that was the center of power, and they knew that they had a nation, the Russian nation, and all that was needed was to invade the Winter Palace and get all power needed in order to convert society according to what they believed was the ideal form of society. But today there is no Winter Palace anymore in any country. Which is the winter palace in uh, the United States? Is it the White House? And who controls the White House? At least Trump has shown, inadvertently of course, but this is what the Trump example showed, that uh, nobody can control the White House unless it is approved by, unless it is approved by those elites that control the media, that control the Senate or whatever. The same happened in uh, France. Where who controls the Elysee Palace? It's not, of course, Macron. Macron was selected by the transnational elite exactly to implement the program of the transnational elite for creating a full federation of European states. In other words, for the formal abolition of uh, national sovereignty, sovereignty. And the same in Britain with uh, Theresa May and so on. In other words, it's not anymore who is prime minister or who is president that controls today's society. It's all these elites who, uh, which actually control those people who are elected in such places. Now, don't tell me that uh, if uh, Hillary Clinton was elected, would not accept uh, all the demands of the transnational elite, of the multinationals, or uh, the mass media. Of course, yeah. of course she would. She, she was part of that. She helped create it. So, so what do we do then? Go back to some form of nationalism before we could then go to some form of community and inclusive <laughs> democracy, which is, I guess, what Brexit was about. But is there anything besides violence, like the Russian Revolution? We saw how that turned out. Is there any way to have a real liberatory project now? How to take any steps towards it, superficially speaking, is there hope left? As you can first the term that you use nationalism, I don't agree that we should call all these movements nationalist movements. That's why I explained in detail why they are not nationalists in the old form, because uh, they are not a nas- aggressive nationalism, that is, uh, we are talking about defensive nationalism, that is, we are not talking about Nazism, or, uh, we wanted to expand the area of activity, economic area of activity of the countries and so on. That is what you call nationalism in Britain today or in France and so on has nothing to do with expanding in other countries in any aggressive form. It's just a defense of the right to, to determine your own affairs in your own country. That's why I call these movements sovereignty movements rather than uh, nationalists or even neo-nationalists because uh, they still 
uh, can be smeared from the left as it is some kind of uh, uh, aggressive nationalism, which they are not. So, what was the last part of your, your question? Well, I just want to, when we talk about these topics, when we get to the end of the conversation about what could be done and if there's anything that could be done, most of my guests tend to be very pessimistic. I'm pessimistic in some ways too, but is there any reason to be optimistic at all or idealistic at all that things could change in a positive way or is it too late? No, it's not too late. I think and uh, I make concrete proposals in my book that uh, the way forward is for all those moments uh, which I characterize, as I said, uh, self-determination moments to start being organizing from below because at the moment it's people like Trump or, or Farage in Britain or Le Pen in France and so on who for their own uh, reasons, political reasons or uh, ambitions or whatever try to exploit, as I said, these moments. The point is that these moments have to organize from below. In other words, they have to self-organize through the form of popular fronts like, as I mentioned before, in the German occupation there were some fronts fighting the Nazi conquerors both in uh, uh, Greece and in France and uh, everywhere in, in Europe. So what we need is uh, people to self-organize in the form of popular front in order to get the national liberation. And once they get national liberation, which presupposes a self-reliant economy, in other words, people have to break with the institutions of the new world order and create self-reliant, I don't mean uh, autarky, of course, I mean self-reliant in the sense that uh, people in a country, say the United States or Britain, would be able to cover most, most of the basic needs and even more by the domestic production. And then, and only then, once they have covered their basic needs, they could start trading on the surpluses of their production and exchange surpluses with other countries. And this could be done within a new community of nations. In other words, I think that only if a new community of sovereign nations is created, only then we can have a ray of hope that we can get out of the present uh, neoliberal globalization. If people first organize in the form of a popular fronts, uh, they get the national liberation, and then they fight with other nations which are also sovereign or they fight for their sovereignty. They unite with these nations to create at the end a community of sovereign nations which would change really the form of the world. Now, what will be the form of each society? That should be left to the people themselves. In other words, after people have got their national liberation, they want to have a kind of socialism or a kind of Soviet communism or an inclusive democracy or a narco-syndicalist society or whatever. Like the Spanish anarchists during the 1930s. Yeah. yeah, all these should be decided afterwards, that is, after they got national liberation, because we should not forget the Spanish anarchists that you correctly mentioned, and uh, as I mentioned before, the Bolsheviks and so on, had already they had their own national liberation. And the problem for them was how they move from national liberation to social liberation. And this is something that the assemblies of the future could decide. Right. That is what you've been talking about since you wrote towards an inclusive democracy, and things are a little bit more complex now. But I do personally think that that's possible, but it seems like a really tall order. But who knows? Things happen quickly sometimes. If enough people in enough places have their lives more turned upside down, things like that might be still possible. Thank you, Takis Kutopoulos, for being on Equal Time for Free Thought again. Thank you, everybody. And you've been listening to a discussion of the book, The New World Order in Action, with its author, Takis Fotopoulos. If you've missed any portion of this program or any previous program, 
on Equal Time, please visit our archives page at equaltimeforfreethought.org. Thanks to Zach Resultelny for revitalizing the look of our website as we celebrate our 15th year on WBAI, and to Michael O'Neill for our continued web support. And until next time, remember to tune in, pay it forward, and question everything. Thank you.